Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. This week, I'm joined by my colleague, Anna Goel, who's the managing editor at DevX. Hi, Anna. Hi, Raj. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, and we've got a special guest uh, this week, as we often do. Uh, this time, it's Sean Carroll, who's back with us. Hi, Sean. Hi, Raj. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And Sean, um, I think everybody listening might know you from prior episodes, but you are the president and CEO of Anera, which is a leading humanitarian and development organization focused on the Middle East. And of course, you at one time, among the many, many hats you've worn, uh, were the uh, chief of staff and chief operating officer at USAID. So lots of different things we can talk to you about and lots of things happening in the news. Um, We are all three, I think, D.C.-based. And D.C. is back in the swing of things with schools open, the the quiet summer over, and lots happening in the news as we look ahead to U.N. General Assembly and many other convenings and gatherings. Um, You know, one of the news articles that stuck out to me this week that I'd love to get your take on, Sean, is the End Fund. Uh, The End Fund announced a new board chair. Maybe, Anna, I could just ask you to kind of brief everybody on what the news is, and then maybe, Sean, I'd love to hear your take on it. Sure. Uh, Basically, the announcement was that um, Siti Masiiwa is going to be the new board chair of the End Fund, which is a philanthropy devoted to ending neglected tropical diseases. Um, It's built on a real interesting construct because it's kind of a, a real example of local collaboration. It uses donations from big names like Bill and Melinda Gates, Mackenzie Scott, uh, to partner with governments, communities, experts on the ground in the continent um, on an issue that disproportionately affects Africa, disproportionately affects women, um, and therefore households, livelihoods, and economic growth. So I think the appointment uh, signals this rise in, in African philanthropy. And it's also an organization that has both kind of this local and global collaboration. Yeah, a couple of things to that to me is being fascinating about this. I mean, one, the End Fund has been around for a while. It's really one of the success stories in our space. You almost wish it didn't have to exist because it's focusing on ending diseases that are just so underfunded and relatively inexpensive to address. But but they are still around there and they affect uh, many hundreds of millions of people. So the End Fund is out there to address this. And I thought it's fascinating that, you know, they picked obviously a billionaire philanthropist, but with African origins. And, you know, Sarai Masiwa and Tsitsi Masiwa are, I guess, London-based, but uh, are well-known African um, business people and philanthropists. So I thought that was an interesting thing. And then just, it, it raises for me the question of, of boards and board governance and, you know, who are the right people to have on your board? How important is it to have the right board? And this is relevant to nonprofits and philanthropies and initiatives like the End Fund. And Sean, since we have you and you have so much experience around these kinds of organizations, I mean, you were with Club for Madrid in the past where you had a senior role. Um, I just, I'd love to get your take on kind of where we are in terms of boards and, and what maybe this announcement, if anything, kind of brought to mind for you. Sure. I think we're going to see a lot more of this. I, we've known 
for a long time, everyone talks about the importance of having a balance on your board. And I just think we're adding new pieces to, to what that means when we say balance and, and, and geographic balance and origin and perspective and you know, where you're from in the, in the world is, is part of that now. So certainly uh, in my organization, we're, we're seeing it all over. We're saying, how, how do we ensure that our board isn't all uh, sitting in the same place from the same place and um, doing more meetings over Zoom helps that as well. I think we used to either be really constrained or, or say that we were constrained by saying, well, the board needs to come in and, and be together. So yes, they all need to be in the DC area for DC base, but you know, that's not true anymore. And so it, it allows uh, flexibility as well to, uh, uh, to, to reach around the globe. So I think we'll see a lot more of it. I think it's, it's, it's sort of now starts to feel very obvious. And to me, it's almost like and not news. Well, this makes sense, right? This makes sense that they've right. But in, in a way, it is news, right? Because as you say, maybe this is happening more and more. But it still yeah. feels pretty nascent to me. You know, when I go talk to, you know, I get, I get asked to come and talk to different boards of NGOs and foundations. I find a lot of the U.S. based. NGOs that have an international focus, when they think about board diversity, they're thinking about that from a U.S. lens. So it's typically board diversity among Americans, but just about everybody is American. They might have some roots in some of the countries where the NGO operates, but for the most part, it's diversity from a U.S. perspective. And it is an interesting thing to consider whether you know a U.S.-based international NGO that might be increasingly funding due to localization local NGOs in other places, does the U.S. NGO also need to have a global board or is it enough for the organizations they fund to have that national or regional board? And, you know, what is the right, what is the right structure? Because th there is something maybe being lost if board members don't actually know each other, if they really just see each other on Zoom once a quarter and don't have the, the bond that come from getting together and feeling more connected to the organization and its mission. Yeah, I think that's true. And so I think if, if you've got people spread out all around, you want to figure out how is there a time, maybe at least once a year, one of the meetings is in person. We tie our annual board meeting to our annual gala fundraiser. So that, that, that gives people a double incentive to come into town and we usually get them then. But I think that's right. And, and, uh, and board members want some informal time where they get to know each other as well. So I, I think you're right. You have to, you have to make sure that that continues, and 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 that's an added challenge. But it it I think it uh, it's outweighed by the upside of having different perspectives and voices and and talents and uh, skills coming in from around the world. And, and I think boards are often challenged by, or maybe executives as they're developing their boards, by like figuring out what's the purpose of this. You know, is is this a board that's going to go out there and shake the trees and raise money? Um, in which case you want like really influential people who have those networks to help you raise money. Is it more of a board where the actual board members themselves are going to be able to write large checks? Or is it more about kind of governance and policy, um, especially for NGOs that get a lot of their funding through U.S. government or other donors? And, you know, it's interesting to consider what is the purpose of the board. And it can sometimes try to serve many different purposes and maybe as a result not serve any of them well. Um, I, and I saw you on mute for a second there. I don't know if you have any thoughts about this. Well, no, you had mentioned um, to your point on that we lo look at these boards through an American lens, uh, which I think is certainly true. And it's also an interesting point that even on DEI efforts and efforts to diversify 
on the American aspect is so far behind, let alone on the global aspect. So, you know, if you look at some of the statistics, which I don't have offhand, but if you look at, at a lot of these statistics, the, the number of, for instance, women of color that you have, whether American or foreign on these boards, is it's still incredibly minimal. And we've done a lot of coverage of the fact that, especially when it comes to philanthropies, there is this strong DEI push, but it's kind of, we'll be having some stories coming up, it's kind of petered out and it's not really uh, manifesting itself in terms of the makeup of these boards. Well, I think a lot of it comes back to what I was saying about fundraising. And so the inequalities that you see, if, if your goal is we want to get the richest people who can write the biggest checks, that might not translate into the most diverse board that really represents the communities you're trying to serve. And so having these, these kind of push and pull different factors that you're aiming for creates a challenge. I remember, I don't know if they still have it, but at one point, the One Acre Fund had separate boards. They had like a governing board and then they had a fundraising board. I don't know, you know, you, you run an NGO now, Sean, I don't know what you think kind of the right structure is to balance all the different purposes of board members and how you think about it. Yeah, well, a couple of things we do. I mean, we, we follow the give, get, connect, right? That you should you should consider as a board member that you do need to either give directly or get others to give or at a minimum connect us with people that you think could come in and get involved and give. And the other thing we, we use as we don't have a threshold. We don't say you have to give this much uh, a year. We do say we'd like you to be a monthly contributor or whatever, uh, at whatever level works for you and that we should be one of your top uh, uh, charities. So, uh, if you're on our board, you should we should be at the top of your list. And then, of course, those those amounts vary by by what they can do. But I think important that they're all involved and they're all they're giving at some level. Um, yeah, it's an option to have a separate uh, development board. But I do think that uh, whatever there, there aren't many NGOs these days who aren't doing some private fundraising and the board has to has to help lead on that. And I, I think it makes the rest of fundraising easier if you can say that your board all give, they all contribute, they all work on this. And I, I do think that's a increasingly a more central and critical part of, of board, but obviously that's not the only role. And you don't want to say no to great board people who bring expertise, who bring connections, who bring experience, uh, just because they can't write you a big check. And what about the size of the board, Sean? Because, you know, as you're trying to balance all these things, you have governance, people who can help you think about maybe private sector initiatives, new sources of funding? This is a great question. And I read something uh, shortly after I started as, as president and CEO at Anira. I read a very helpful article that said, when you have a larger board, I was advocating for larger boards. When you have a larger board, you bring in more funding. That's obvious. The interesting thing was you bring in more funding per person on an average, because what happens is if you have a bigger board, you're more likely, it's not a guarantee, but you're more likely to have a few people giving uh, big bucks and they help uh, They help uh, encourage others. So your average actually goes up. And if, again, with technology, it's not that big a deal to manage a 30 or 40 person board as compared to a 10 or 15 person board. And also, as you are trying to get more diversity and reach out across the world and make sure you're covering lots of bases, inevitably, it's going to get a big bigger, a bit bigger. So I, I'm actually an advocate for, for larger boards. Yeah, they can be unwieldy, harder to manage, but you're right. In some ways, the more the merrier.
The world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. Here at DevX, we're following the state of food insecurity around the world and the solutions that are needed to overcome it. I'm Teresa Welsh, senior reporter, and I'm also the author of DevX Dish, a free weekly newsletter bringing you a comprehensive look at everything that matters in the world of food. Each Wednesday, DevX Dish will be your guide through the interlocking policy, infrastructure, climate, agriculture, nutrition, and human rights issues remaking the way food is grown and distributed. Visit devx.com newsletters to subscribe and get your weekly update on the race for a sustainable global food system. had an interesting op-ed this week as well in DevX. I thought maybe, Anna, you could you could speak to that a little bit from uh, Olusun Onigbide, who is the global director of the Budget Foundation, um, that similarly focuses in on this issue of local participation in Africa and on the climate topic. Maybe you could say a couple words about what uh, Olusun is telling us, and, and uh, we can discuss it a bit. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it, it, it calls for the type of structural changes in the Bretton Woods institutions that we are constantly hearing about and that people are clamoring for. But I think what's unique about this op-ed is it also casts a, a critical eye internally on Africa, um, specifically around the issue of accountability. Um, it talks about weak procurement systems, a culture of patronage, um, and just outright corruption. And I think, you know, his argument that larger institutions such as the World Bank should also, we shouldn't necessarily be leaving the issue of accountability to strictly to partner governments and that the larger institutions need to be mindful of this. Kind of an interesting dichotomy in the localization argument because you're asking these larger institutions to kind of keep a better eye out on local governments. Um, although at the same time, he advocates for making sure that that we give to local community leaders who are most directly affected by, by climate change. But um, I think that's what makes his, his argument pretty unique in the sense that we do kind of have, uh, look at the internal issues within Africa. Yeah, and I also feel localization conversation is often so Western-led, I mean, even the, even the name behind it. And, you know, here we have the head of Budget Foundation, which is Nigeria-based, but works across, you know, Ghana and Liberia and Senegal and Sierra Leone. And, you know, they're coming out and saying, look, we need to think about localization in a different way, because if it's just going to be multilateral development banks, especially as they become more prominent in climate finance, um, saying, hey, we funded governments and government initiatives, you know, check, we did our duty, that that actually isn't sufficient because a lot of these governments are not in a position to use the funds in the way they're intended and there isn't sufficient accountability. So it's a, yet another interesting lens, I think, on this localization debate that, that we're constantly having and that we talked about with you in the past, Sean. And any take from your side? Yeah, we, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I looked at your last uh, podcast, the series of, of articles and, and, and DevX Newswire. I mean, it's, it's all over. I think there's a real momentum here for still questions and some of them a lot of them are reasonable questions and i think some of them are feet dragging questions but also a lot of movement on on localization and i i, I think this article uh is showing it i i just uh, as we speak something funny happened i got invited to a conversation on localization and i'm going to be traveling so i asked if someone else could come they said yes so i asked our country director for one of our countries who's on our senior executive team if 
if she'd like to do it. And she came back and said she was rejected. So, you know, here we're, we're trying to have a conversation about localization. <laughs> and I, so there is, there, there is work. We have, we, we have to do more work, but I think we're seeing a lot of uh, momentum on this. A lot of pieces are coming together and you, you, all, you, you can't avoid it now. And I think that's what we have to have. We have to have a critical mass of attention and, um, and hitting different areas uh, on, on the climate change. I think we're seeing it. You, you highlighted the, the ongoing negotiations on loss and damage fund for the COP28 in, in Dubai later this year. And the, and the leading voices uh, are, are from the global south. And they're the ones that are saying we need to figure out this loss and damage fund. So I, I think we're seeing it, but I think we have to keep uh, the focus and keep checking ourselves to make sure we're really putting action behind the words. No, and I was just going to make a quick note that you have to be careful of Obviously, corruption, but also using corruption as an excuse not to devolve power exactly. to local organizations. Exactly, it's a great point. And and I also the other thing that's interesting about this story, this this op-ed, is that it focuses a lot on the multilateral organizations, including the World Bank. And I think so much of the localization conversation leaves them out. It's much more focused on bilateral aid, which seems a lot simpler to address. Right? You say, well, are we giving the money to a U.S. based company or NGO, or are we giving it to an organization based in the global south? I think it's a lot more complicated when it comes to multilateral funding, because traditionally multilaterals have given loans to governments. So in a, in a way, they're already localized. And I think what, what this piece uh, and others are calling for is a much deeper sense of what localization actually is, like getting to the subnational level, or getting to, to local uh, municipalities, giving money through initiatives that actually flow to social entrepreneurs and to businesses and thinking about this in a very different way. And I think it's kind of a call to action for, you know, for groups like the World Bank under its new leadership to, um, to think about localization differently. Yeah, also a fair point. I mean, you know, who, who, are, who are the local organizations? I just came back from summer vacation from a country where I, I learned, I read that uh, when they set up an NGO, uh, sector system. They just put in f uh, retired government officials to run all these new NGOs. So that's that's not the same level of, of uh, localization, community work that you're that you that you want to look for. Yeah, absolutely right. So as with anything else, like for this to be more than just a trend or maybe like a fad, which as we know, there have been many many development fads over the years, and I think localization isn't one. I think it's a much deeper shift, uh, shift in power that has been underway for quite a while now and has more momentum than ever, um, thanks in part to Samantha Power and her big push at USAID, but, but many others have been on this for a while as well. Feels like we're, we're not just talking about a fad, but for it to avoid that trap, it has to get, you know, past just the, just the labels, you know, oh, this is localized technically. And it has to get to kind of the spirit of what people who are pushing for this more fundamental change really want. Um, speaking to the spirit of, of what we really mean by development and development assistance, um, we have an interesting, fascinating uh, little kerfuffle happening in the UK. I guess it's not little because it involves billions of pounds um, and what really counts as aid and what doesn't. 
And again, maybe you could just tell us what the story was this week that our own Rob Merrick reported. Yeah, Rob's been really following this issue closely. So basically when the UK passed, uh, or it hasn't fully passed it yet, but the proposed the, it's called the Illegal Migration Act, it would essentially ban um, asylum, asylum claims by anyone who's arriving without permission. And in doing so, it seems to have broken OECD rules for official development assistance. So it's really what makes it interesting is this blowback or rather it's backfired because um, originally it kind of took advantage of the OECD rules to count, um, you know, at home accommodations for refugees as foreign aid, which most people would naturally criticize as, as that's an oxymoron. Um, and so if that program of counting, you know, domestic um, accommodations is revoked, uh, this could say free up uh, well over $3 billion to go back into foreign aid spending. So it's kind of like a windfall, depending on how you define it, because it what used to be foreign aid spending. Now it would be diverted back to these foreign aid programs. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating and kind of a big deal politically um, inside the UK, because now, as Rob reports, there's a big fight over, well, who will have to pick up the tab? You know, will the home office have to pick up the tab or someone else? And it's not a small number, as we've said. And on the other hand, it's also a shocking thing that something like 29% of what the UK considers its overseas development assistance budget was spent domestically last year. It was spent inside the UK, and most of that on hotel bills and other kinds of accommodation bills for refugees. And they're calling that ODA. So it's a really high stakes, important um, debate that's happening in the UK. I wonder, Sean, what your take is on all this. You know, the uh, ODA, UK ODA has been going down. So having having it go back up and actually work in, in, in the countries, including a lot of the sending countries, could be a good thing. I mean, certainly our, our focus working in uh, with, with refugees or potential refugees in, in the Middle East. I mean, I could see uh, that funding being put to good use to helping uh, refugees uh, live sustainably where they're living now or return. And in fact, the, the UK and other countries on a per capita basis, their support in, uh, in Lebanon and the West Bank and Gaza and Jordan, the three countries we work in are, are, are quite high, but there's, there's never enough. The UN and the bilateral donors are not getting enough funding to meet the needs in these countries where, where uh, you know, nearly half the refugees in the world are, are from or in these countries. So there's a lot of need there. Certainly could, I think it would be uh, welcome for some of this money to shift. Yeah, I think to me, this is like, I don't know, maybe a canary in the coal mine, right? If you look at the politics around refugees in Europe, the rightward shift of many governments you know, this Illegal Migration Act might be particularly stark, but it does seem like this is the trend. I mean, even look at the United States at our own politics and how um, refugees and asylum seekers like have figured more and more in politics in recent years. And then if you look at the trends, both climate and conflict trends that are driving people to flee their home countries, it feels like this is just the beginning. And I think it does put it does put the OECD and the Development Assistance Committee, I mean, this really technical committee that very few people in the real world have heard about. Those of us in, in the trenches of global development know it, but this is not a household name. 
But it puts them suddenly in kind of an important position because if they can help decide what counts and what doesn't, and if that does lead governments to make big changes in the way they fund foreign assistance, it really matters. So, you know, can the OECD Development Assistance Committee kind of be tougher in the future on on ensuring that the only things that get counted as aid are the kind of things that really should be, that make sense to be counted as aid? Um, I don't know, Sean, you've you played in these circles for a while, especially when you were over at USAID. What, what's your feeling about the role of the Development Assistance Committee in these rules going forward? Well, this, I mean, this is a tough one, right? Because if, if you if you work in international development and humanitarian assistance, you know that you want as much of the funding to go directly to programs and beneficiaries as possible. And a great criticism is that a lot of not just U.S. donor aid, but many countries donor aid, it ends up staying in the country or going to uh, U.S. Uh, companies and organization and staff. On the other hand, we're you know we're we're, we're seeing. A uh, huge debate in Congress, where where just about everyone in the Republican Party is going to get up and make a floor speech against foreign aid, and uh, and and often it's more palatable when they know that in in fact uh, it benefits uh, U.S. organizations working in their constituencies too, right? So it's not an easy uh, it's not easy. I think the OECD could play a role though, and what's happening right now in UK could be something that provokes that conversation and, and tries to ensure that more funding is going to where the real need is, which then, you know, if we do it right, it, re it reduces displacement and migration. And maybe the costs on the other side are reduced. And a lot of donors recognize that and they are putting their funding into where uh, the real issues are. In fact, they're, they're trying to fund, uh, they're trying to keep migration down, immigration into the countries down by funding it. You, you'd hope that, that both can be done. Right? You take care of asylum seekers and those who need safe shores, as well as 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 trying to decrease the the number of displaced in the world. And of course, that's what we're all working towards. And there's just not enough resources on either end for it. And I would be really curious too, because um, the Development Assistance Committee is made up of members, um, countries that are the ones implementing these policies. So perhaps at some point there's an internal backlash against these rules because the rules um hinder what some of these member states are trying to implement yeah that's very true and then there's also the chance that countries like the uk could just decide to kind of to to go back on their pledge i mean they already went back on their 0.7 percent of gross national income pledge but the only reason these rules really matter for them is if they want to be able to have some some credibility around the amount they're pledging to give to aid every year but maybe some countries and some governments decide well, we don't care about this. So let the OECD say that we're giving much less than we think we're giving. We'll publish, you know, two sets of books and, and tell the world what we think counts and OECD can say what they think and, and who cares. So I think there is a delicate political balance here, exactly as you say, Anna, because this is kind of an alliance of donor countries. And at the moment, it feels like it's still tipping in the direction where there's a a plurality, if not a majority, that, that care about these rules being kind of highly credible and want countries to meet a higher bar. But, but that could easily diminish as the politics shift in many donor countries. Well, we, I should mention, we are going to have the chair of the OECD Development Assistance Committee uh, on our stage at the DevEx Summit during UN General Assembly, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks. And uh, everybody is excited and geared toward those events, and uh, we will ask him these questions and hear what he has to say about it uh, when, when we get there. Uh, any final thoughts from you, Sean, as we wrap up? 
No, great conversations and stick with these uh, topics because I think, as I said, we have to keep we have to keep holding ourselves accountable. We have to keep asking the right questions. We have to keep making sure we're we're moving forward on all of these uh, issues of inclusion and localization and uh, and ensuring we're getting as much funding as possible in in you know, tight political pressures. But the needs are there, and we're not even meeting a. A significant portion of the the need, and they're, and they're growing. So uh, keep having these conversations. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Raj. Thanks, Sean. Thanks all. Thank you. This has been this week in global development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day. Become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.